First on film and entertainment, what a week it has been. Cruel Intentions is back in town. Melbourne Theatre Company, a tour de force single performance, which I'm going to be talking to you about, and more superheroes. Well, one of them is Greg King. How are you, mate? I'm good. Um, you, I think have someone, you ever put on a Superman cape? I mean, it didn't, no, in no I think I've got kryptonite in, in my jocks early on. Uh, and Peter Krause, the, the the man who loves dress up. Now, superheroes <laughs> and Peter Krause, oh, I, you cannot use one without the other in the same sentence, can you? Oh, they are mutually exclusive. Thank you. <laughs> and the man who has gone to see Cruel Intentions more than anybody I know 11 times, I believe, Dave Griffiths. Is that right? That is correct, and it's back in Melbourne once again. So uh, back It is mighty. Season. It is the best version yet, and we'll talk about that as the morning progresses. But first up, we've got to talk about a movie which is, well, the third instalment of the series. It started in 2015, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. So I, I was wondering what's Quantumania all about? Well, it's about the quantum realm. And in case people don't know what the quantum realm is, well, this is a secret universe beneath Earth. And there are all sorts of terrors there. So you've got to concentrate on Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which is this movie, 124 minutes in length, M-rated. It's kind of like the ridiculous meeting the preposterous. I still thought it was a lot of fun, if somewhat lame. That's kind of my, my pen pal description of it. And I mentioned Ant-Man in 2015. Then there was Ant-Man and the Wasp. That was 2018. And Quantumania, quite the roller coaster ride. You've got Scott Lang, a.k.a. Ant-Man, played again by Paul Rudd, happily married to Hope Van Dyne, otherwise known as the Wasp, Evangeline Lilly. He can't believe how his life has changed since he became a superhero. He's constantly recognised, even if he's confused with other more popular cartoon figures and he's just released a book seems to be comfortable just coasting not so his daughter cassie played by Catherine newton who has to be bailed out of prison after she steps in for what she perceives to be a worthwhile cause and cassie has inherited her father's superpowers so she can go smaller or she can go larger she implores her dad to help right wrongs and not just sit idly by signing and reading out from his book. So that all of this comes out at a pleasant evening meal with a family, also attended by Hope's mother, Janet, Michelle Pfeiffer, and father, Dr. Hank Pym, Michael Douglas. While Dr. Pym has been working to utilise the industrious property of ants, Cassie has been playing with the quantum realm. There we go. We go back to Quantumania. That horrifies Janet Van Dyne, who's seen enough in that secret universe. And then flash, suddenly all five are catapulted there and a real fight begins. They are, of course, keen to find their way back to San Francisco, but it's clear that Janet's been keeping her associations with the quantum realm secret. And before long, the Langs and Van Dynes have to confront the evil that lurks in this universe. He is known as Kang the Conqueror, played by Jonathan Majors. He's looking for revenge after being banished. To that end, destruction on a massive scale is a byproduct. He has no compunction about engineering. Quantumania, written by Jeff Loveness, a lot going on here, and it takes concentration to ensure no threads are missed and determine just who fits in where. 
Humour is an integral ingredient in the offering. And to that end, Lang is in for a shock when he's confronted by an adversary he thought he had eliminated. Now known as Modoc, Darren Cross, played by Corey Stoll, was rescued by Kang and is now simply an inflated head with tiny limbs and a few tricks up his sleeve. Try as Modoc does, no one takes him too seriously. He's sort of the butt of many jokes here. So that's Quantumania. Uh, Dave, let's start with you here. Uh, Paul Rudd, there was one scene that I thought, well, he sounded too forced, but he sort of continues to present that endearing character as he shrinks and grows as required. What did you think of the movie? Yeah, I wasn't in, that impressed with this one, to be honest. I thought that a lot of what we saw in the quantum realm we've seen before in films like Journey to the Centre of the Earth, uh, Strange World last year, there were a lot of scenes in there that when I watched them, I was like, well, I've already seen this scene in Star Wars or I saw it in John Carter or even Green Lantern out of the own Marvel Universe. It, ju- uh, Sorry, the DC Universe. It just did not feel like this was a film that had any other reasoning of being in the Marvel Universe other than to introduce Kang the Conqueror. And Jonathan Major's performance was the only thing that kind of saved the film. The other big criticism that I have, and a few people have said this to me, was it rested very, very heavily on the TV series of Loki. So if you haven't seen Loki and that introduction to to Kang and also... Um, the, the, the quantum realm in itself, you you could be a little bit lost, but I just called this a filler film for Marvel. It just feels like it was there to fill the void that they needed to get that next jump to have Kang the Conqueror come in. Luckily, Jonathan Majors saved the film because there was so much else that was disappointing. Bill Murray and his character of Lord Krailer were massively underused. Um, Catherine Newton, I suppose you could say, was a, a big plus and hopefully we see more of Cassie in the future. But, yeah, I think this is one of uh, Marvel's weaker films. And yet Peyton Reed was still in the director's chair as he was for the first two. So I, I agree with Catherine Newton. I, I mean, I thought she brought some rebelliousness and spark to her role as Cassie. And, you know, Jonathan Majors, largely restrained menace. That's how I describe his his role in the piece. What did you think, uh, Peter? Was it something that uh, interested you even vaguely? Not at all. I, in fact, the first Ant-Man film was not bad. It was it had some amusing moments in it, some good writing for Paul Rudd and uh, for the whole storyline, and even Michael Douglas, who uh, at that first film was given some uh, amusing lines. But this film is a washout for me. It is just cliche-driven. Uh, it, it's based on the idea that throw as much CGI, as much special effects at the audience, and hope they don't notice how lame and how poor the storyline is and mm. i was not impressed at all it, it it in fact it's nice to see some australian visual effects people were involved in the film but the film itself is just awful and uh, i would like to see a return to the earlier uh, marvel films that at least were a bit more original had a, a story that had some gravitas to it and had characters that might have had a sense of humor or might have had something about it in this film uh quantumania it is so cliche driven that i was bored uh, solid by it so uh, very disappointing film mm. well i mean look i thought the visual effects and cgi were appropriate given 
where the film was going, quite effective in terms of plot development. But, uh, yeah, uh, did we really need to see talking broccoli, Greg King? No, I don't even like to eat broccoli, so I don't, don't want it talking back at me. Um, but I'm with everyone, what everyone else has said about this film. I thought it was a bit of a mess, actually, and it wastes the challenge of Michael Douglas, who Peter said, you know, he was really good in the first film. Um, he comes across here, he plays sort of like a king of the ants here. Um, I also <laughs> wasted Michelle Pfeiffer's talents. Um, I thought uh, it's overloaded on special effects there. You know, it's a visual spectacular there, but it becomes overbearing at times and you get lost in it. The story was messy and complicated, and as Dave pointed out, you have to have seen some of these other um, shows, TV shows in, that, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in that, to be able to get your head around who these characters are and where they're going. This is intended to um, introduce Phase 5 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, but it just How many of, phases are there, Greg? I've got no idea, and I don't really care at this stage. <laughs> Um, it seems uh, and it seems as though the writer here has seen Star Wars a few too many times, probably as many times as Dave has seen um, Cruel Intentions by the sound of things. A lot of references to other movies there, you, lots of cliches there. You can see a lot of influences on the film, but for me it didn't really hang together again. The two saving graces for me were Paul Rudd, who's got a genial presence as Scott Lang there, brings a lot of humour to the role, and you've already mentioned Jonathan Majors, who is the villain, um, a cliched over-the-top villain nonetheless, but he does bring a sense of menace and sort of um, one of the better things about this film. But for me, no, it um, shows what's bad about Marvel. Just one thing that I, I was curious, Michelle Pfeiffer was the original Wasp, wasn't she? I mean, she's, you know, if you look at the the sort of CVs on this, um, they're, there's two credited with the Wasp, which I thought was rather interesting. Can Can one of you explain that to me? Yeah, she was the Wasp that back in when Michael Douglas was Ant-Man and then she disappeared into the quantum realm and then years later their daughter um, picked up the suit and wore it for the first time. Ah, fair enough. All right. So I'm not expecting magnificent scores. I mean, look, I I suppose, yeah, I thought there were certainly lame bits and things that didn't hang together. No question about that. The plot's a real stretch. But then, unfortunately... Peter, I think you nailed it. That's become par for the course for superhero films. There's, there's, you, you look at the original, whether it be Ant Man or you, you go back to some of the, the, the really strong superhero films. And it's been a while since I've seen one that's really excited me. Nevertheless, I mean, look, uh, I, I just accepted it on face value. I didn't expect much out of it, and I probably went in there with the right attitude. So I'll probably end up giving it a higher score than the rest of you. I'm giving it a six, so I'll start off. Um, who's who's going to who, who else is going to pass it? Anybody? Barely. I'm giving it a five. Yeah. Okay. So Greg. Uh, look, I I think still Spider Man is the best. Films in the yeah. Marvel canon there, um, and the strongest films. This one, four and a half to five for me, and that's about it, and that's overly generous. Yeah, well, I mean, the original Iron Man was fantastic too, yeah. I thought. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's another example. Okay, so, Peter, I expected you to be low score on this, so I, I, I'm correct, I, I presume. Go for it. What are you giving it? You are certainly correct. I, I couldn't pass this film. Four out of ten. Yeah, all right. So, you know, it, it's somewhere in that realm, and, uh, yeah, you, I mean, I, I suppose that, People are going. To, there are going to be some people. I. It was interesting. I. Um, I had a clash on the opening media night, so I ended up seeing women talking, uh, which we will talk about. But notwithstanding that, when I went to see it in 
cinema, there were quite a few people there. So, I mean, they wouldn't be making these unless they get bums on seats. It doesn't make them good films, but it makes them, you know, I'm not sure what, how this is going to do in the box office. Pete, what's your, your view on it? Well, the early word I've read already from Variety is that it's going to do very well indeed. People are clamouring to see these films. Yeah, so so given all of that, I mean, it's it's sad in a sense because, you know, when you've seen some really good superhero movies, you long for a bit more originality, et cetera. And the, the plots seem to just replicate one another. That's the other aspect. And they're always trying to do bigger and brighter, and this is where CGI and special effects tend to take over. Uh, and... Let's be honest, unless you've got a decent plot and you've got some quirks and things that are a little bit different, uh, yeah, if you see a lot of movies, uh, it, it all becomes same as, same as. I was just going to say, the reason I think these movies have such a big audience is um, the great Jim Shembury said to me the other day, there's a generation of people out there that don't know life without a Marvel movie now. Um, like even my nephew, for example, he loves the Marvel Universe and that's mm-hmm. because he's grown up with a Marvel film coming out every few months. So it's just a thing now that when a new Marvel film comes out, that generation go to see it. Yeah, yeah, understand. Uh, it's it's. Uh, let, uh, I wish they'd be seeing. Well, maybe they are, but I wish they'd be seeing a bit more quality product out there as well. L- talking about quality, let, let's talk about women talking. Uh, you are on Jair eighty eight FM. This is an M-rated, 104-minute-in-length movie, and even though it's a work of fiction, it's termed an act of female imagination, the starting point for women talking is what happened in the recent past. And I'm referring to events that took place on the Manitoba colony, which is a remote and isolated Christian community. They're known as Mennonites, and that's in Bolivia. So between the years 2005 and 2009, more than 100 girls and women in the colony awoke to discover that they'd been raped in their sleep. How horrible. And the backdrop is that a group of men from the colony was spraying an animal anaesthetic into their victims' houses to render them unconscious. The movie is based on the seventh novel by a Canadian writer called Miriam Toes, which was published in 2018. It centred around a secret meeting in a hayloft of eight women from the colony who have to decide on behalf of the other women how to react to the traumatic events which I just talked about. Importantly, time's on the hop. They've only got 48 hours to reach a decision before the colony men, who are away to post bail for the rapists, return. The film is actually set in 2010, written by Sarah Polly and Toes, really skillfully directed by Sarah Polly. It's a searing indictment of men, violent, controlling and manipulative men. And it's a film that drip feeds information to form the full picture of why these women have been pushed to the point that they are. And they've basically got to make one of three decisions. And and that's that's what the, the whole film is all about. Do they stay? Do they go? Do they do nothing? You know, what do they end up doing? So uh, they fear the consequences of leaving, of never again being able to see the children left behind and of turning their backs to God because this is a God-fearing colony or community. They also, though, fear the consequences of staying, of, of more violence, of more control and manipulation. As I see it, it's mighty powerful, slow-moving, but it's a small audience film, Peter. Definitely. In, in fact, 
the uh, the storyline, the writing and the mm. direction, of course, as well as the performances are just absolutely superb and uh, based on that novel that you referred to. It, it has so much prescience in terms of the situation that women find themselves in when they're caught in a violent situation or relationship, whether they stay or whether they leave. And uh, there's so much developed in this uh, in this film, which I was very impressed by. No wonder the uh, the screenplay has been uh, Oscar nominated. Um, it, it's also interesting to note the the issue of the Mennonite community that it's based on. This idea of religious cults or groups that uh, have power over people, and in in this case, uh, power over women, and how you're sort of trapped and uh, unclear about what to do. It's nice to see a positive uh, male performance in the film, uh, as in Ben Whishaw, who uh, does a very good job as the teacher. Excellent job. And, I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's a film about women, but the sensitivity that he brings to the role is really what stands out. And the way the film is shot, the uh, desaturation of the film, so Mm. that the colour grading uh, almost, but it doesn't quite go to black and white, is uh, very impressive. And there's always been comments about films that are largely set in a single setting. Um, And I I had no problem with this being highly cinematic. Sarah Polly, who did uh, Stories We Tell, is so good at telling stories, and she tells them so well in this cinematic environment. This Uh, could be a play, though, Peter, as well. I mean, because, you know, you don't... You don't need a lot to tell the story, and I could see this on stage, could you not? Uh, yes, possibly, but I think it's important to have the camera movements, the close-ups, the uh, the cutaways, etc., that are in the film to give it, I, I think, extra strength in terms of the storyline. And the other thing I found amusing and interesting in this film, not that there's a lot to be amused about in the film, is the use of the song Daydream Believer, which mm. uh, is sort of a 60s sort of throwback, uh, monkeys and so monkeys, on. Monkeys, yeah. Yeah, but it's also this idea of uh, let's believe in something hopeful and positive to move forward and to find something better in life. So, look, a very impressive film, very well written, and uh, I certainly highly recommend it. Uh, you talked about the lighting. That really struck me as well, really evocative. Think about the shards of light entering the hayloft. I mean, that was that just magnificently captured. And I thought, you know, even though we're talking about 2010, the soundtrack really stood out. I, it, there was There's so much about this. It's, it's really well considered. It's a really very well-developed script. The performances of all of the women, three generations, the, the, the fine cinematography, all of those elements sort of band together, don't they, Greg? No, really good film. I haven't seen this one yet. I, I had, like you, I had the choice between this and Ant-Man on the preview night, and I went and saw Ant-Man. I haven't had a chance to catch up with this one yet. Good on you. Well, what about you? Uh, in terms of great films, Dave, I would have thought this is one of them. Oh, definitely. The, the power of the word. Um, I said in, when in, in my written review that there are very few films out there that can bring suspense to the screen using words, but this film does that because you're on edge all of the time. You want to know what these women are going to decide and how they're going to decide it. A few people have said to me they don't want to see this film because they've heard that it's so dialogue heavy, but I actually think that that's the power of this film. It's such a brilliant screenplay. It reminds me of the suspense that I got from a very, very rare cult film I think from the late 1980s, called The Ice House, starring Melissa Gilbert, 
where it was a, a, a young boy sitting in a room confronting the woman that had taken his virginity. And it was such an amazing film, even though it was just in that one setting. And this film went back to that as well. Interestingly enough, in the novel, uh, Peter mentioned um, the soundtrack and the use of Daydream Believer. In the mm. novel, it was actually California Dreaming by the Mamas and the Papas ah. that was uh, used. And that was because it was supposed to be that these um, women are dreaming of breaking out of that society and, and getting to somewhere like California. That's the, the pinnacle of life kind of thing. So, yeah, it was interesting that they made that decision to change that. And I'd love to know whether it was a an artistic decision or whether or not they just couldn't get the rights to the numbers. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, there was one thing. I mean, I, I, just, I thought in terms of performance, wow, uh, Claire Foy as Salome, really forceful, every reason to be. Of course, her character's past and present are horrific. And, in fact, that's the truth of all these women and their offspring. I, I thought that... Uh, the the other i mean Rooney Mara is amongst the most accommodating of the the women as owner and and she's also you know in in a situation that uh, she she's been set upon and and I'm not going to spoil the surprise for people who have not seen it but uh, she's not out to offend she's not out to push buttons but she still manages to do that so uh, there are some very very strong performances it's really an ensemble of actors who fill the primary roles and I didn't think there was a misstep amongst them. And really, they're fiery, they're, they're strong, they're vulnerable, they're apologetic. They they clash frequently. The clashes are quite vitriolic. And the other one I wanted to comment on, Frances McDormand. She, she plays only a really small role as Scarface Jans, but as always, I just found her enormously impactful. She doesn't have to say anything. Her ashen face speaks volumes, Dave, doesn't it? I mean, the presence that she has looms large in every film she's in. Yeah, she does. And I, I think she is one of, almost one of the key characters in this, in a sense, even though she's mm. not in it for very long, because she's the, the first one that's kind of adamant that we're not leaving, um, where I think that was needed because this could very easily have become a film where the women were all in accordance with each other, kind of thing and and that would have taken away the suspense i think having her character there was so important francis mcdormand was also a producer on this film as yes. well so i guess that's one of the reasons why she wanted to have a part in it but yeah it, it's amazing how many of these characters when you look back at the film only have small roles but they're so important to the storyline at the end of the the film um i think that is really really unique quite often with cinema these days all of the action takes part around the, the major players. This film really is an ensemble performance. Um, I really wish that they had some of those awards that they used to give yes. to ensembles because this yes, one I agree with hands you. down. Mm. Look, uh, the one thing I would say is that it, it, it is you've got to be patient because it ta- it it could have been shortened somewhat it's not a long film as, as such i mentioned 104 minutes but yeah it, you know it, it's it takes place primarily in this hayloft and yeah it could have it could have moved a tad faster in my opinion but that may have detracted from the overall impact because the overall impact is huge it's heart-wrenching it's it really is an insightful piece of movie making and it does leave an indelible impression so let's get some scores we'll start with you peter uh, very impressive film. Uh, I think for Ensemble, it's nominated at the SAG Awards. 
um, women talking. Yes, it is for the uh, film cast. So it's nice to see that. Look, very impressive film, nine out of ten. Mm-hmm. Dave? Yeah, nine out of ten for me as well. And eight out of ten for me. We are talking first on film and entertainment. You are listening to Gregory King, to Dave Griffiths and to Peter Krause and myself, Alex, first. Now, I want to talk about, on Jair, spoiler alert, this is a 112-minute, M-rated, and as the title suggests, the outcome is writ large at the start of this movie. It's based on a best-selling memoir by Michael Osiello, and it's a 13-year love story between a couple of guys. And Jim Parsons plays Osiello. He's a really sensitive journo who writes about TV shows. And as a child, he dreamt of a sitcom with him at the centre of it and his family filling the other roles. He's a hard worker as a journo. He is someone driven by his job, hardly a social butterfly. And then one day, a flamboyant gay colleague invites him to join him at a bar and initially turns him down. But then Osiello begrudgingly agrees. And that's when he sets eyes upon a photographer called Kit Cowan, played by Ben Aldridge, who is muscular and assured. They're very different, this pair, but but the chemistry between them is unmistakable. The film showcases their resulting relationship that came out of that face-to-face meeting at the bar, complete with highs and lows. After Cowan is briefly hospitalised, Osiello meets Cowan's parents. They are not aware that their sons are homosexual, but far greater hurdles lie ahead. It combines heart and humour. It's quite an emotional, quite an effective, affecting journey. The harsh reality of the story brings with it extra bite and power. The director's Michael Showalter. He did The Big Sick, and he ensures that the movie is imbued with pathos. Really well composed by writers David Marshall Grant and Dan Savage, from a book by Osiello titled Spoiler Alert, The Hero Dies. I really appreciated the nuance, the quirks that Parsons brought to bear in the movie. He introduces Osiello as a person who really does care deeply. And Ben Aldridge, he comes across as somewhat of a devilish charmer, much more of a a player than Osiello. But I, I really thought the scene stealer was Sally Field. We don't see a lot of her these days, but she plays Cowan's mum, Marilyn, effervescent, a hyperactive chatterer, and I thought she she really did shine in her characterisation, Greg. Yeah, I really enjoyed Sally Field in this film too. I thought she was really good there. But I like the storyline too and how the relationship between um, the two men developed over time there. I thought this was a really nice performance from Jim Parsons, who's always been sort of stuck in that sort of um, – role of Sheldon, you know, from the Big Bang Theory, and even his role in in Figures had much of that same mystique here, so it's nice to see him actually break out and to do something a little bit different here. Um, I, I saw him on stage in New York um, in The Boys in the Band um, five years oh, ago. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, um, along with Zachary Quinto and Matt Bomer, so, you know, it was really good there. But, yeah, I like the, I like the film. I like the trajectory and the fact that, you know, that one of the characters in the relationship is going to die at the start, I think just sets up that expectation and tension in the story as you watch the relationship. Develop. I was worried and then about that. Um, sort of I was a bit worried about that. I, 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 that's the one bit that I, I mean, because I, I understand the book gives everything away 
uh, and and the film is is not you know doesn't give away hero the hero dies kind of thing. But I I just think it would have been a better film without knowing that, and you know you could form your your own opinion as you went along the way. It, that troubled me somewhat. Didn't trouble me. It was sort of like a little prologue to get you into the story, and then um, you go back and develop the story, and, and you knew the relationship, and it set it up beautifully. I thought. Okay. Uh, what about you, Peter? Yeah, I had no problem with that idea as well. Uh, the hero dies at the start and then we get the trajectory of the story as it develops from their first meeting. Uh, I really liked the way uh, Show Walter has directed this film. As you said, he directed The Big Sick um, and The Eyes of Tammy Faye. So he's a, a very astute director and I like the way that they used distancing effects in this film so that you don't feel the tragic melodrama as strongly as you would if it had been will he or won't he die sort of storyline so and I'm and sorry when the you idea, say distancing effects what, what are we talking about in well a good example is that there's a scene in the hospital where we suddenly pull back and we have all the cameras we have the this sort of fantasy element where mm-hmm. there is this uh, idea that maybe this is not happening, that sort of mm. thing. So, uh, and there are a few other distancing effects, some lines here and there. Um, uh, I mean, Sally Field is excellent, but um, I, I think the only disappointment for me was not seeing the real Michael Osiello. I would have oh, liked okay. to have seen him at the end of the film so that we at least had a context for the real character. The other thing, uh, with the distancing effect, I also uh, remembered the film Bros, of course, Billy Eichner's starring role, where he used savage humour and over-the-top humour to uh, distance from uh, the more underlying tragedy or, or difficulties or problems in his life. No, I, I really like Spoiler Alert. I think it's very well done, and it's interesting to see Ben Aldridge, who is also on screen at the moment, at uh, Knock uh, at the Cabin. Um, so um, uh, he's getting uh, some good roles as well. So uh, yes, I like the film overall. Mm. Uh, one other thing, it re- sorry, one other thing it reminded me of was a film called Long Time Companion from the late 80s with Steve Buscemi there, which dealt with the love story against the backdrop of the AIDS pandemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we are seeing a lot more sort of mainstream product that's sort of got a gay theme, and, um, yeah, that's that's great. I mean, that's uh, that's the society, and, and perhaps we're, we're, we're no longer as uh, timid about putting this subject matter, which should never have been sort of kept in the closet, dare I say, uh, out on the big screen, and, and that's the way it should be, Dave, don't you think? Oh, definitely. The, the thing I did find with this film is I thought that, the relationship starting at the start between Michael and Kit, I actually found that really natural. The writing there was absolutely sensational, but I felt that that fell away a little bit towards the end. Um, the interesting part for Jim Parsons is I actually thought that this was a strange choice for him because the character was similar to Sheldon. He had this way of looking at life through television shows. He had this OCD obsession with Smurfs and things like that. There was some big similarities there actually between Sheldon and Michael. But my biggest flaw with this movie was I felt that the writing kind of fell away towards the end, which is funny because the ending did have me in tears, especially with some lines that come from um, Kit's parents. But I just found that at times towards after the time jump in this film, some of the dialogue felt very days of our lives, young and the restless. It didn't seem to have that, natural flow that the dialogue had early on in the film. Um, so 
I think that kind of dampened it a little bit for me. But up until that point, I, I loved this film. I didn't mind the fact that we knew the ending because, as I said a few weeks ago with the um, um, What's Love Got to Do With It, you knew the ending of that film as well, but it was the journey that got you there that made it special. The same for this film as well. So what would you give it out of 10? Um, I gave it a 6 out of 10. A 6 out of 10, okay. So Dave, Dave 6, I think you'll be higher, Greg. Go for it. Yeah, and I really like that touch of um, Jim Parsons' character um, and his obsession with the Smurfs. I thought that just what a nice, quirky touch to his character there. Well, I'm going to give it seven. Sorry, seven. I was going to say to you, I mean, do you collect anything, Greg? Is there anything you particularly... Um, uh, I collect um, booklets from concerts and plays I go to, um, collect CDs and all that kind of stuff, but that's about it. Okay, sorry, what, what was the first one? I, I spoke over you. Say that again. Um, all the programs and... Oh, the programs, yeah, the yeah. Program- all the concerts I've been to. Yeah, uh-huh. And likewise, I mean, I, I like uh, collecting theatre programs and I find that obviously it's useful when I'm doing the reviews anyway. What do you, what do you collect, uh, Dave? Uh, pop culture and sporting memorabilia. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which, again, it dovetails beautifully into what, what you do and what we all do, which is fantastic. Uh, Peter, do, um, do, you, um, uh, do you collect race cars or what do you do? <laughs> yes, uh, AFL footy cards. No. Uh, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, so I can ri- so I can the, rip them up. The Sir James Hurd card is more <laughs> worth more than any other. Yes. What, what uh, do you collect anything? Well, actually, I, I try and collect some rare Blu-rays or DVDs of films that are uh, very rarely seen or have extra components uh, to them. And, and do you get them in Australia or you get them abroad? Uh, both. Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, see, that must be interesting. So you obviously have some places that you can turn to, but it, uh, how, do you, how do you determine what you are going to sort of look for? Uh, is it a movie you've seen or a movie you've heard about or what? It is a mixture of that, and also I, I try and find rare silent films and, uh, uh, and early sound films that are, uh, have been restored or have had uh, um, a 4K version attached to them and extra uh, information and, uh, and so on, extras that are so usually very useful. What's the most valuable to you or most, most uh, r- the rarest, if you like, in your collection? And we may never have heard of it, but there you go. Well, you, no, you probably have. It, uh, it, when I was in uh, Germany, I picked up the the complete version of Metropolis, oh. um, which which had a uh, which has a booklet in it, which has uh, about six or seven long uh, interviews and other information about the making of the film. Um, some real rarities there, so uh, I suppose oh. that might be the uh, the rarest I have. And Greg, in terms of programs that you've collected, what's the one that I suppose you hold dearest to your heart? Oh, God. That'd be Is there really, one or not really? Not really. Um, it's just a good way of remembering some, some of the benefits. Oh, okay. No, no, I just thought, you know, may have been somebody who's no longer performing or no longer with us or whatever it well, might be. That's of, the there's right. a couple of them. There's a couple of them yeah. in that collection. Um, and, and, like Meatloaf and... Meatloaf and um, ah. That, yeah, and... Yeah, meatloaf would be a good example. Um, the uh, mind you, I don't think there was a program for the um, MCG performance at the grand final, was there, Greg? Mo- there was a grand well, final program. It's called the record, but you didn't get it, um, anything to commemorate Robbie Williams' fantastic performance there. Just the memory in, in my head. Exactly. Yeah, and and Dave, uh, I mean, you've got lots of stuff. So what what's your prized possession? 
Um, my prized possession is actually a film cell from the Fast and Furious franchise that was signed by the cast, and Paul Walker signed it on the day that he died. Wow. Oh, my golly. Gee, what a sh- Yeah, that was a terrible incident. I, um, I suppose in terms of uh, signatures and whatever, uh, I, I had the good fortune to be involved in the 2000 Olympic Games. And you remember, Dave, this is me one especially for you, you remember when, when we had the 4 by 100 relay uh, and, and there was the, the massive competition between the Australians and the Americans. And I, I got the I got the the sheet that determines the winners with the times, et cetera, signed by all the Aussie swimmers. And who was the, the the guy who did air guitar for the Americans? But anyway, that that yep. that's one of my prized possessions. But I suppose the the real one I've spoken about on this program before, I've got a signed letter from Audrey Hepburn talking about the uh, how she can't stand the paparazzi from the 1950s. Wow, so that that's that's really quite special, Peter. I'm sure you'd appreciate that too. Absolutely, sounds great. Yeah, yeah. so it's interesting. I've got, I mean, I've, got more, I've got Morgan Freeman's autograph on a seal from Seven. Oh, have you really? Wow. Okay. Yeah, he's a. I'm a big fan of him. I, I think he's a terrific actor and has been for a long period of time. And of course, he, he only started late. So anyway, we, we've. Um, it's 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 interesting. It gives us a little bit of an insight. I suppose all of our minds are working similarly because of the industry that we um, find ourselves to be a pleasant part of. On Jair, I, I wanted I, to talk about... Alex, sorry, I, haven't, I haven't given a score yet for spoiler alert. Oh, I'm so sorry. I apologise. <laughs> um, yes, uh, and we, we, I got totally distracted. <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm choking now on, on, on my, my misdemeanour. Uh, <laughs> what's your score for miss, miss, spoiler miss alert? Who? <laughs> anyway, all right. we won't go there. Uh, spoiler alert, I, I must say Jim Parsons has been doing other roles as well. You mentioned Boys in the Band, Greg, but he also was in The Normal Heart, where, which looked at the, the early days of uh, the AIDS uh, story, and et cetera. So he has been breaking out of the yeah. uh, the Big Bang Theory roles. Anyway, no, I liked uh, Spoiler Alert. I think it has a lot to, to commend, and I gave it a 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10. And, Greg, did I get your score? Yeah, I said seven out of ten as well. Yeah, you as well. And and Dave, I think you said six. I'm yep. giving us I'm giving a seven out of ten as well. I, I think it's although it's largely predictable, it, it does strike a chord. It deserves to find an appreciative audience, and uh, that is spoiler alert. Now, I wanted to talk about a few movies, and guys, just to jump in if you you feel like saying something. If not, then I'll just uh, plow on. But uh, Prima Facie at Fairfax Studio. Do do any of you know anything about this? Because this has had real successes an australian success story was written in in fact it started out in at a 105 seat theater in sydney it's called the griffin i don't know whether you you've seen the griffin greg when you're in sydney's king's cross but um basically it started there in 2019 and it's written by a former lawyer called susie miller uh that's her name and and then it, it since played the sold out seasons in the west end and it's now in melbourne as part of the mtc at Fairfax Studio, and it, I mean, it's it sold gangbusters because it's about to open on Broadway as well. So it's a real, had any of you heard the title, Prima Facie, in terms of n- any knowledge of it or not? No? Yes, I saw the National Theatre Live uh, oh, screen production theater. with J- Jodie Comer playing the role. Excellent. And, and in fact, I, I after I, I 
wrote my review, uh, I, I, I saw the review of somebody else who, who'd seen both and said, this blows it out of the park. Now, uh, that, I mean, you've seen, you've seen that one. That must have been quite something, the National Theatre Live, yeah? It was. It was a terrific performance, and the, the shades of grey of the character as she develops uh, the story is just fantastic. Okay. Well, so that's interesting that, you know, again, the, the comparison. I have, I've only seen this as a theatrical production. Tessa Ensler is played by Sheridan Harbridge, who is the, that was the role that she played in Sydney. Successful barrister. She knows the tricks of the trade. She defends her clients. Many of them are alleged sexual offenders, and she defends them vehemently. And she relishes the game. I'm talking about circling witnesses until really she's ready to pounce, having lulled them into this false sense of security. She's really good, really good at what she does. Those who know her know how she operates and and what's coming. The witnesses are therefore sort of mere lambs to the slaughter. Tessa chose law after she she did particularly well at her final high school exams, and then she received a reality check when she was sitting with fellow legal wannabes for the first time at uni, she was told in no uncertain terms that many wouldn't see it through. That was never going to be the case with Tessa, though. Now she's had 11 years' experience and she's winning case after case. And even when human compassion might enter the equation for a victim, she justifies what she's doing and how she's doing it by saying to herself that she's merely adhering to the legal process. And then one fateful drunk night, everything changes. Suddenly, she becomes the victim. And life for her will never be the same again. It takes 763 days for her case to be tried. The question is, will she see justice? Now, I mentioned it's been written by a former lawyer, so the insight is really most important. And the the reason it's been universally acclaimed is, is quickly clear when you see this production. Miller's writing, descriptive and insightful, and Sheridan Harbridge, well, she's a force of nature in 90 minutes of really compelling theatre, just her and a chair, and yet she holds us in the palms of her hands throughout. She celebrates, she pouts, she parties, she's flirtatious, incredible, driven, highly capable, and she displays strength. And then she's shell-shocked. She's vulnerable, she's anxious, and she's alone. In a millisecond, she shifts the mood. She does so with remarkable dexterity and aplomb during the course of this performance. She transforms into Tessa. We totally believe she is her. The picture she paints is vivid and it's also very alarming. Behind it is the need for change, and that message could not be clearer. Now, since uh, around about middle of last year, I've seen, I've been really fortunate to see three Bravura One Woman shows each of which have left an indelible imprint. And I should say they're, they're three one-person plays. Uh, I, I believe they are. I, I hope I haven't identified them incorrectly. But I believe all of them are women. Uh, there was MTC's Boys and Girls, which showcased Nikki Shields, and then there was the picture of Dorian Gray at Arts Centre Melbourne featuring Erin Jean Norval. In fact, Nikki Shields was an alternate there. And and now we've got this one, Prima Facey, with a name that, is just terrific. Sheridan Harbridge, she's such a great actor. So this is directed by Lee Lewis and it's must-see material. By the way, the the title, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with what prima facie means, Latin, of course, meaning on the first appearance. So otherwise put, 
as a fact presumed to be true unless it's disproved. So it's obviously appropriate to what we're seeing here in terms of the legalese. So it's um, it's Fairfax Studio Arts Centre Melbourne until the 25th of March, but get in early because, you know, they're already it's all but a sellout. So I would I would highly commend it to you. And, uh, Peter, based on what you've seen as a production on stage on you know, which been, has been filmed, uh, would you say the same thing? Did you find it compelling? Absolutely compelling. The writing is just superb as well as, well, I, I can only comment on Jodie Comer's performance, who was superb. So I'm sure that uh, uh, this actress is just as good. It's a, a terrific storyline. Yeah, it really is. I mean, um, I, I'd like to see this on, on film, I, I, you know, as a movie. I, I think it could be made into a, a movie. It could be expanded, if you like. Uh, you could you could introduce other characters and I think it could still work. Do you think so, Peter? Uh, I'm not so sure. I, I think it might uh, okay. diffuse some of the uh, the ideas and the, the intensity of the story, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting one. Now, I want to... Really odd, Peter. Um, Alex, you mentioned the Griffin Theatre in King's Cross. The main, yeah. thing saw, the main thing I saw when I was in King's Cross, I did a historical tour of King's Cross where all the famous, you know, you learn about the history of the place and some of the famous people like Peter Finch that lived there and they point out some of the places that no longer uh-huh. exist that were part of... Um, King's Cross notorious history. I, I I was a bit worried where you were going there, that because you started off with the main thing I saw in King's Cross, and I, I there, there would have been all sorts of things that I could have put in there, Greg. But um, yes, um, I, I I remember. That's how your mind works. That's how your mind works, Alex. Exactly. Thank you very much. I I, I did a tour underneath the sewers of Melbourne. What does that say about me, Greg? Um, well, we live. <laughs> We live in an affluent society. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, I, I also saw Nosferatu at Maryland Theatre at the Malthouse during the week. Now, talking about silent movies, uh, you must have seen the original Nosferatu, 1922, I think, the German expressionist film, Peter? Absolutely. I was there at the launch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I'm not surprised. Yes, yes, uh, yes, uh, um, I, I'm not going to say you look like death warmed up. Uh, now, uh, I'm just wondering, uh, Dave, have you seen that original film? I have, yes, yep, and they had it just recently at Monsterfest again. Ah, very good, yeah, and I've seen it as well. Greg, you, you, you've you patronised oh, it too? Yeah, I've seen it, and a couple of other silent films from that era, like The Cabinet of Dr Caligari, which we did at school. Ah, yes, 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 exactly. Well, look, this play, it's a reworking of Nosferatu, a very modern reworking. And it starts, imagine this, with this heartfelt warning from one of the characters that only tragedy puts you on the map. And then there's a plea to save ourselves as audience members as it's too late for her. And that rings out as well. Now, that, that's the start of a tale of an unremarkable mining town in Tasmania beset by evil. And it's called Blue Water. And after a checkered history, it's now struggling to survive as a town. The land's been poisoned. Investors are desperately needed for the mine to have any hope of continuing. And the job of finding them is left to Tom, Keegan Joyce, and also Nock, Max Brown. And Nock is the, the town's mayor, who happens to be attracted to the, the doctor. And the doctor is named Kate, played by Sophie Ross. Now, but first, Tom must metaphorically wrestle with her journalist girlfriend, Ellen, played by Shamita Siva. So she doesn't spill all the details of an environmental impact report into the town and the mine and so forth. She reluctantly agrees to hold back before Tom takes off 
to pursue a promising investment lead in Sydney. His trip to a remote mansion surrounded by woods and shrouded in fog is anything but straightforward. And when he does arrive, he's greeted past midnight by a pale-looking, confident man who calls himself the Count. Jacob Collins Levy is that role. Fortnight later, Tom is awoken by a desperate call from his girlfriend who has no idea what's become of him. He's disorientated. He's clearly in the grip of something beyond his reckoning. He's still with Count Orlock, who then is invited back with him to Tasmania. After further drama en route, in quick time, Orlock is putting the bite on many of Blue Water's remaining residents. So I mentioned this is a modern take on a, an age-old story. Well, you go back to Dracula, which, which goes back to 1897 and the novel by Bram Stoker. The playwright here is Kezia Warner, who admits he doesn't know much about vampires. Uh, clearly, though, he's been sucked in, creating a dramatic... Thank you very much. I'm waiting. I mean, I'm waiting for Greg Puns here. Um, and he's he's created this sort of dramatic, humorous and seductive piece of work. Now, apart from the, the writing and the acting, uh, staging is everything. And it's here that the set and costume designer called Romany Harper has done remarkably well. Imagine there's a, a sprawling set, the backdrop of which is ceiling to floor red curtaining, in front of which sits six six doors. So you've got the curtaining at the back and the doors in the front and also in the room, and that's still at the back of the stage, it's a really huge stage, is this heavy boardroom table and some chairs and the boardroom table lights up so it can go to blood red. The mood lighting by Paul Jackson, sound from Kelly Ryle does the rest and it's very atmospheric, Nosferatu. It immediately drew me in, carries with it no shortage of laughs due to the surfeit of pithy one-liners and it's, it's also not without its surprises. I thought Collins Levy was excellent in his portrayal of this suave, controlling count, never short of answers, and he's got this sense of comic timing which really works well, great sense of, of comedy. Also appreciated the surety in Sibber's performance as the hip journo driven by her instincts to probe further into just what's going down. Joyce readily steps into the role as Tom, popular, flummoxed nerd, caught way out of his depth looking for investments, and Ross brings practicality in suspicion to her persona as Dr Kate, while Brown is eager to please as the mayor knock. It's very creative, this Nosferatu, certainly engaging and entertaining, although I did think it dragged a tad before it reached its climax. Ten or minute, ten, maybe 10 or 15 minutes could have been saved by, by sort of shaving it off once it was established what Count Orlock was up to in Blue Water. But the lion's share of this piece, which really is, it is the lion's share, directed by Bridget Belotus, has a lot of spark and sizzle, and it and it's bloody good fun, Greg. You know, I mean, you know, that's what what this play is all about at the Maryland Theatre, at Malthouse Theatre, until the fifth of March, and it is called Nosferatu. I'm so there you go. Bloody project becoming a pain in the neck. Very, thank you, Greg. V indeed, indeed. Uh, but yeah, well done, really well done, and uh, uh, just I mean, you you step into this this sort of uh, theatre and. I don't think I've ever – the stage just takes up half the theatre. It's, it's amazing what, what they've done with it. So, um, yeah, good on, good on Malthouse Theatre for, for putting it on. Now, Dave, you and I last night attended a very, very good production of Cruel Intentions. I mean, it, you know, you've seen it 11 times. Where does this rate in the pantheon of 
of productions of Cruel Intentions, in your, your opinion? Yeah, I thought last night was actually one of the best performances. Um, having some new cast members come in for the for this Melbourne season has brought some new life into it. But I thought the cast were having a lot of fun last night. There were a few times when they kind of interacted with the audience. There was um, times when uh, things on stage kind of le leapt over to crowd reactions. Um there was one point in particular where um, I'm trying to think of her name. Uh, Kirby um, was using her binoculars uh, as Catherine, the character, and panned it over yes. the crowd and went, ew, and she looked at someone. So, yeah, they were having a lot of fun last night. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are falling in love with this musical. It is such a fun musical. And for people of my age, all of the songs were our high school soundtrack when we were growing oh, up. The, so. the music was just magnificent. I, look, I thought this sizzled. I, I've seen it three times in three times in the last sort of nine months, and the performances, the powerhouse performances, the rousing score. I mean, there was palpable excitement and anticipation in the theatre even before the the metaphorical curtain rise, wasn't there? I mean, I thought that that really set the scene. And then once it did, the energy, it, it's electrifying. It, it oozes with sensuality and sexuality. And uh, it's it slick. It, it moves along at pace. It milks the copious double entendres and, and the physical interaction that are inherent parts of the script. And of course, we're talking about manipulative youngsters behaving badly and two in particular. And it's based on the 1999 movie of the same name, which starred Sarah Michelle Gellar, Ryan Philippe and uh, Reese Witherspoon. So, I mean, I, I just thought that some of the performances here, Dave, the, the Kirby Burgess that you mentioned, I could not be more impressed. I, I mean, she's just so assured. She really capitalises on the toxicity that's the hallmark of her character. And doesn't she blow the roof off it vocally, hey? Oh, definitely. Kirby Burgess, Drew Weston and Kelsey Hayes, they are the number one team in Australian theatre at the moment. They are absolutely amazing as a trio. And, and like I said, having new castmates around them in some of the roles, I think has actually energised them oh, as well. Look, it's but fabulous. I, I can I see mean, Sarah, what, what's that? Sarah, I don't know how you pronounce her surname, K-R-N-D-I-J-A. She's new, and I thought her... She's a comic tour de force. She's this sort of innocent but eager to learn Cecile Caldwell, an absolute scream in the role. And I thought Ross Cesari really dined out on the the sort of shocks of Blaine Tuttle. He's this sort of he's this gay guy who who readily gets together with a manipulated jock. And I thought both of those were really excellent in in their roles. Oh, definitely. I can see this becoming one of those cult theatre shows that they yeah. have to bring back to Melbourne or Sydney every few years just to to keep audiences happy because someone said to me last night that for them for their generation Greece was the go-to musical yes but for this new generation I think Cruel Intentions is going to be it was a much loved film by people of my age and the soundtrack is still one of the highest selling soundtracks of all time love um Absolutely so people love, love the music yeah. as well Dave, we've got to go. I've, um, I've overextended my welcome, but thank you very much for your insights. Folks, we'll catch you next week on First on Film and Entertainment. Thanks, boys. See you later.